So this afternoon's message is entitled "Lessons on Power." Lessons on Power. Before I go into the actual sermon, I thought I would do a brief review. And there's actually quite a lot of information to cover, and so I'm going to—I'll probably skip over some of the lines, but I'll trust that you can read faster than I can talk. Um, a couple of weekends ago, Brunwyn shared a uh, Bible study in small group on power, and uh, this kind of sermon was a, a bit inspired from that Bible study. But um, yeah, just by way of review, we've covered quite a lot of history over the past uh, couple months, and so I would cover—wanted uh, to review with you. So. In the first century, we talked about how the church was birthed. There was rapid growth under the Roman Empire. Uh, the rapid growth took place because uh, there was a single uh, communication was very easy under that empire. Uh, everybody spoke the same language. Uh, it was easy to move from one part of the world to the other because the road systems were quite developed back then. And as you've heard of the term, all roads lead to Rome. And it was due to this fact that um, the spreading of the gospel uh, was quite easy and moving from one part of the world to the other was quite easy. In the second century, there was quite a bit of persecution that took place and the church was quite divided with various different kinds of doctrine uh, that was uh, spread throughout the church. In the 3rd to the 5th century, uh, the period of persecution had finally finished with the entrance of Constantine, and uh, the second wave of imperialism had kind of entered into uh, the world as the Roman Empire had come to an end. Um, it's at this time where uh, the church finally decides to unite itself. Uh, it unites itself in structure. It also unites itself in doctrine. From the 5th to the 9th century, there was another wave or another transition that the church went through as uh, the church began to uh, continue to organize itself. It introduced the role of the Pope, um, and it's also at this time that Islam begins to become a dominant force in the world. And what takes place is that Christianity gains a stronghold in Western Europe because of Charlemagne, and uh, Christianity also develops quite a bit because of uh, academia and scholarship. And so um, that's the first nine centuries of church history. And uh, today what we're going to do is we're going to cover uh, the ninth century to about the 11th and 12th century. And so um, what I want to do is start this by sharing about how the church, which was once united, became divided. Now what takes place is uh, it's at this time that the church in the east which has its um, capital kind of in Rome, uh, is considered the Roman Catholic Church. And then there's the church in the West, which eventually becomes the Greek Orthodox Church. Um, initially, they're under one umbrella, and later on there's this division that take, takes place. And this happens for several reasons. One, uh, the very nature of the two sides of the church were very different. The Western side of the church was very united in doctrine. It recognized the Pope as its authority, uh, as its sole authority. On the East, the Greek mindset was quite different. different. They processed inf information through reason, thought, philosophy, and therefore uh, theology was not consistent. There wasn't unity. And what takes place is early on in church history, most of the theological differences um, take place because of what's happening in the eastern side of the church. There's also some geographical challenges. Um, in the East, uh, Constantinople it has its uh, 
excuse me, the church capital and the capital of the empire are both in Constantinople. And what takes place is that because the church and the emperor are so close together, the state heavily influences what takes place in the church. And as a result, uh, the Western church, which has quite a bit of distance from each emperor, uh, had a bit of freedom. And so uh, the churches were run very differently. Theologically, there are differences. For example, on the eastern side, the leadership did not promote celibacy amongst its uh, clergy. The priests wore beards. And so if you see a lot of pictures of uh, Greek Orthodox priests, you'll see them kind of sporting these pretty hefty beards. Um, Services were held in their local language in Greek. And the church was heavily influenced, which I've already mentioned before. Now, on the western side, the church... uh, the church really encouraged celibacy amongst its uh, clergy, and later on it actually made it mandatory. Uh, the priests were encouraged to be clean-shaven. Um, services were held in Latin, and of course, as I've mentioned, because of the geographical challenges, uh, the church had quite a bit of autonomy. And what ended up happening is the church ended up splitting apart. Now, what ends up happening is in the east, the church... Um, begins to stagnate and struggle because of the presence of Islam being right at its borders um, and also because of the influence of the emperor. But in the West, the church begins to flourish and the church becomes this dominant, powerful force. And I want to share with you this afternoon just some of the things that led to the rise of uh, of the Roman Catholic Church. First of all, the Roman Catholic Church had monks, priests, cardinals, and bishops who gave complete loyalty to the Pope. And this ends up being a very powerful, powerful thing. Secondarily, there was a document entitled The Donation of Constantine, which was seen as this legal uh, document that gave ground for the possession of land to the Pope. And throughout history, people kind of argue whether or not this document was actually uh, written by Constantine or not. But, and, and we're really not sure. But the papacy actually received quite uh, a lot of land because of this document. And it was very significant in the rise of the power of the Catholic Church. Thirdly, the Eucharist was introduced. And what the Eucharist uh, really, or excuse me, the Eucharist was introduced during Mass. And this became very important. Now, Mass is kind of like church service for the Catholic Church. And each Sunday, they would come to church and the priest would give wine and bread. And that was considered the Uh, to be the Eucharist. And what would take place is um, the church began to teach that the Eucharist was the actual physical body and blood of Jesus. And though in front of them there was just a bowl of wine and a little wafer, um, as the priest would pray, the priest had power to turn that wafer and that wine into the very, um, yeah, physical, uh, physical, Uh, it it turned into a physical piece of Jesus. And what would take place is as people would partake of that, their sins would be forgiven. And what this did was it elevated the role of the priest and it kind of separated the priest, the clergy, from the laity. And it kind of forced the laity to come to church. It forced the laity to become dependent upon the clergy. And this also became a very powerful tool. Fourthly, as Jinha mentioned last week, scripture was replaced with tradition and superstition, uh, which left the commands of church leadership pretty much unquestioned. And this also became a powerful tool. Number five, as the Roman and Byzantine Empire were no longer in existence, 
divided nation states were struggling for power um, while the church in the West was united. And we're going to see how this plays out. So these are a few things that uh, really lead up to the uh, rise of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, it's at this point in time that there are two leaders in history who become uh, incredibly influential for the Catholic Church. The first individual, his name is Pope Gregory VII. Pope Gregory VII. And he is influential for two reasons. He has this very strong personality and very strong conviction of what uh, the role of the Pope should be. Back in those days, uh, the way that the Pope was elected was that different aristocrats would come together and there would be a group of uh, clergymen, a group of wealthy noblemen, and some aristocrats, and they would then vote on who the next Pope should be. And so uh, what takes place in the church is heavily influenced by um, wealthy, influential lay people. And what Pope Gregory does is he looks at the situation and he says, this is not right because the church should not be influenced by laity, it should not be influenced by the state. And so what he does is he uh, changes the system, and as a result, uh, what takes place is the voting of the Pope is done only solely by the cardinals and bishops of the Roman Catholic Church. And what this did was it gave the church significant power and control over its leadership and its direction, and this was, uh, this was quite significant. Secondly, he wrote a document called Dictatus Pape, and it clearly expressed his ideal for the papacy. And I'll read a few of these things, uh, a few of the points that it states. Number one, it states that the Roman church owed its foundation to God alone and not to man. It stated that its pontiff was alone to be called universal. In other words, if there was ever going to be another secular emperor who would claim to be, I am the emperor of the world, the pope would say, no, I am universal alone. It means that he had power over all bishops, it means that he had power over all secular powers, and it states only his feet should be kissed by all princes, and it also stated that he could depose of emperors. And this was a challenge because um, in the western part of Europe, it's at this time where different rulers are trying to gain power. And it's at this time that there's a significant individual by the name of Henry IV, of Germany, and he's in the process of uniting Germany under one state. And it's at this time where the different noblemen um, and uh, Saxony, which is a state of Germany, are kind of talking, they're going through negotiations of, of, of becoming united, and the rulers really don't want to unite. They like being feudal lords, they like having control over their little pieces of land, and Henry IV comes to them and says, listen, we really need to come together. Now, Henry IV is significant for for a couple reasons. One, he rejected the power of the Pope. He said, you are sovereign of the church, I am sovereign of the state, but I get to trump you. And the challenge is, both leaders are considered to be servants of God. And the whole Western world was Christian at this time. And so the lady, the nobleman, the king, they are all Christian. And so they acknowledge God as sovereign, but the king says, I am here as a servant of God. The pope is here as a servant of God. The king is in charge of the body. The pope is in charge of the soul. 
And you can imagine this was quite complicated because, well, who is in charge of who if both are servants of God? And so Henry IV rejected the authority of the Pope and said, I get to do whatever I want, you leave me alone. And Pope Gregory basically said, no, I am in charge of you. And so here's what eventually takes place. The uh, noblemen of Germany do not want to unite, and the king of Germany wants to unite, and he's rejected the Pope. And what happens is Pope Gregory VII excommunicates Henry IV and basically releases all of his subjects from submitting to the king. And he says, the king is not going to heaven, you don't have to listen to him. And what takes place is the noblemen uh, gather together and they tell Henry IV, if you do not submit to the pope, we are going to overthrow you. Um, And so you need to consider these things. And so Henry IV, uh, not having uh, a settled position of power, decides, I will submit to uh, Pope Gregory VII. And he goes on a three-day journey through the winter over the Alps with his uh, wife and baby. And he comes in front of the palace of Pope Gregory VII. And Pope Gregory VII basically says, you stand in front of my uh, palace gates barefooted, and when I let you come in, you can come in. And so for three consecutive days, Henry IV stands in front of this gate, barefooted in the middle of winter, and Pope Gregory finally says, okay, you can come in now. And he comes in and he reinstates Henry IV, um, his, his spiritual status, I guess. Now this ends up working well for Henry IV because what happens is he gains the trust of his noblemen. They actually unite and they become um, the, the country of Germany, if you will. Now, what takes place is time passes by. Pope Gregory VII gets upset at King Henry IV again, and he excommunicates him a second time. But this time, Germany is united. And what King Henry IV does is he gathers his army, he marches down to Rome, and he actually overthrows uh, Gregory VII, and he replaces him. And so uh, Gregory's power uh, increased, and then it kind of ended at the end of his life. Now, fast forward... Uh, a few popes, and here comes a, a second influential pope. Uh, this is Pope Innocent III. And he basically takes what Pope Gregory VII has laid down as doctrine, and he intensifies it. And what he ends up saying is, the pope is, or he, he uh, introduces this doctrine called the Vicar of Christ, and he basically says the pope is God's representative on earth. And the Pope cannot make uh, any errors. And in the past, whatever the church has done, it has not erred in its decision making. And it basically makes the church and the Pope infallible. Now, um, he takes what Gregory has done and also takes it a bit further. And he basically says, I can also depose of emperors and rulers. And uh, he also runs into a bit of a, uh, a battle. And the battle he fights is with a man named Philip Augustus, who is the uh, king of France. Now, Philip and the king are uh, basically competing with each other for for power, and Philip uh, comes to this point in his life where he ends up, and he makes this decision, I'm going to divorce my wife. And he is married to a woman named Ingenborg of Denmark, and he claims that she's bewitched, And he decides, I'm going to divorce her. And he forces the French bishops to annul their marriage. And so the French bishops, um, they reluctantly uh, comply. And 
Philip then takes a woman named Agnes as his wife. Now, Ingenborg goes to the Pope and says, Hey, listen, um, our marriage took place in the church, and he is challenging your authority. Um, And so, Pope Innocent, what are you going to do? Pope Innocent then sends out this message to Philip and says, You cannot break the Ten Commandments. No man on earth can break the word of God. No man on earth can challenge the church. And so I am ordering you to send Agnes away and remarry uh, Ingenborg. Philip, of course, refuses. And then comes the second battle or significant battle. And this is what Pope Innocent does. He sends out an interdict which affects everybody in the nation. And here's what he does. He says, I am, um, I am giving a command that all churches should be closed no baptisms are, are to be done except for baptism of infants. I am forbidding the celebration of Mass. I am banning any kind of religious ceremony, including funerals. Priests are not allowed to preach except for in the open air. And this actually went into effect because he had the authority, he had the loyalty of all the priests, all the bishops, all the cardinals. And so everybody in France basically shuts down the church. Now can you imagine one country having one church and the whole church shutting down. And the people went up in an uproar and they went to Philip and basically said, you better listen to what the Pope says. And it basically took the power of the king right from under him and he was forced to listen to uh, Pope Innocent III. And so he sent Agnes away and he remarried Ingenborg. And this was very, very significant. Uh, France was one of the most powerful nations at that time, and it bows its knees to this religious man. Now, Pope Innocent III knows that he has the uh, loyalty of France, and he runs into political problems with England and uh, with the Empire of Otto. And what takes place is he then goes to France and he asks them, there are these two other powers that are not submitting to me. I need your armies. Send them out and take care of these two empires for me. That takes place. And what ends up happening is that uh, Pope Innocent III kind of puts puts the church in a corner because now the only nation, the only empire that has power is France because the only other two empires that could have um, balanced out the worldly power, their armies are kind of um, lacking now. And so what takes place is the church has power, France has power, and you fast forward a couple hundred years more, and what ends up happening is France basically um, decides we are no longer going to listen to uh, the church or the pope. They march into Italy, and they dethrone the pope later on as well. And so, um, yeah, that's just kind of like a brief history, a brief snapshot of how the church rises in power, and all of these things lead up to the Reformation, and Jin Ha will be talking about that next week. And so... Today, what I want to do is share a few lessons on power. Is the way that the church handled power in the past the right way to handle power? And the Bible actually shares a few principles about what it means to practice and exercise authority, and I want to share that with you this morning or this afternoon. So if you could turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 13, verses 1 to 17. John chapter 13, verses 1 to 17. There are three brief lessons that I want to share with you from this passage. John chapter 13, verses 1 to 17. The first lesson that I want to share with you is that 
Power is not measured by what others do for you, but by what you do for others. So John chapter 13, verses 1 to 17, and we're going to read verses 3 to 5. And these are the closing scenes of Jesus' life. He is spending the last Passover with his disciples, and right before they start their meal together, their final meal, meal together, the Bible says something incredible about Jesus. Verse 3, it says, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from the supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Now imagine this. The text says that Jesus was given all power and all authority. In other words, He can do whatever he wants. He has reached the pinnacle of his mission, and God basically bestows all of heaven at the feet of Jesus, and he says, you have all power. And the question is, what does Jesus do? And in the very next verse, it says that Jesus stoops, he girds himself, and he begins to wash his disciples' feet. He begins to serve his disciples. Incredible. Jesus uses his power so that he can serve others, and there's this Bible definition in Matthew chapter 23, verse 11, of what power and greatness really means. Notice it says, and this is Jesus speaking here, he says, but he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. And the, the very essence of leadership, of power, of authority is the ability to serve. The ability to serve. You see, in the world, The reason why power is so attractive is because it gives you the ability to do whatever you want. When you think of a person who is powerful, what makes them powerful? And for me, the the reason why powerful people are powerful is because they have freedom to exercise whatever desire that they want. That's what makes somebody powerful. And this is the worldly sense of power, doing what you want when you want to do, uh, when you want. Power is something that is given or taken by those who work hard, those who become rich. You gain, you take power by what you are able to produce, and power and influence is given to you based off of your abilities and talents. So not only uh, is an individual power because they can do whatever they want, an individual is, power be- is powerful because of what they're able to do. Uh, major corporations hire CEOs because they are the most capable at what they do. Power is given to those that are capable. And Jesus' approach to power turns this model upside down. Because according to Jesus, power is not what you get. Power is not what you are able to do. Power is what you are able to give. Lesson number two. One must learn to give, but one must also learn to receive. If you look at verses 6 to 9... John chapter 13, verses 6 to 9. The story continues. Jesus is going around and he's washing his disciples' feet. And as he gets to Simon Peter, his disciple, he's about to wash Peter's feet. And Peter says to Jesus, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answers and says to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. And Peter says to him, You will never wash my feet. Peter can't handle Jesus doing this favor for him. And Jesus looks at Peter and he says, if you don't let me wash your feet, 
you have no part with me. Peter is going through uh, this very human struggle. He doesn't want to accept service from Jesus because he doesn't feel worthy. He has this worldview where there are different levels of worthiness. Uh, There are different classes of people where some people deserve more than others because of what they're able to produce, because of what they're able to do, because of their value, because of their worth. And Peter looks and he compares himself with Jesus and he thinks to himself, I'm not worthy. I can't, I can't let you wash my feet. I don't know if you've ever felt the same thing where you've been in the presence of somebody and you just kind of feel like, man, I'm not, I'm not worthy of this person. There's a sense of being nervous. There's a sense of uneasiness because here's this person who is, in our, in our estimation, much more capable, much smarter, much more, and then you can fill in the blank, than I am. And there's a sense of shyness. There's a sense of um, unworthiness. I remember... Uh, when I first, uh, when I was getting to know Jinha, there was this sense of unworthiness. Here's this person who's very attractive, and I'm kind of like, how is this person ever going to be attracted to me? And I would look at her, and I would feel shy. And there's a sense of, she's so beautiful, I'm so ugly, ah! (laughs) You know, there's like this sense of insecurity because of, there's this made up, there's this made up distinction in my mind, right? Peter feels this very thing. And, Jesus is trying to remedy this problem. It's happened in the past. It's showed itself in the past. In Mark chapter 10, verses 13 to 16, there's a story of uh, these individuals bring children to the feet of Jesus. They want these children to be blessed. And what the disciples do is they rebuke the people who have brought the children, and they kind of turn the children away. They kind of say, don't bother the master. And the reason why the disciples are turning the children away are because they don't feel like the children are worthy of Jesus' time. The children are not worthy of Jesus' attention. And Jesus looks at this, and the Bible says that he's disappointed. Uh, Notice in verse 14, Jesus saw it. He's greatly displeased, and he says, Let the children come to me. Do not forbid them, for such is the kingdom of God. And Jesus is trying to teach his disciples. There is no class distinction. There is no human being that is more worthy or less worthy of me. And so when Jesus stoops, and as he's about to wash Peter's feet... He's trying to teach Peter this lesson of power, this lesson of authority, this lesson of service. And what he's saying is, you cannot discriminate people's worth based off of age, based off of gender, based off of anything. And he rebukes Peter and he says, if you don't let me wash your feet, if you don't let me take care of you, you have no part with me. This kind of thinking, this kind of discrimination leads to... Well, it makes humanity less human. I don't know if you uh, saw in the news this week, uh, the Charleston Massacre. Uh, basically, the largest African-American church in, uh, in Charleston, South Carolina, um, has its presence in, in, in that city. And they have these Bible study groups that go on during the week. And there is this uh, young Caucasian man, 21 years old, walks into the church, uh, enters uh, joins the Bible study, sits through the Bible study for a whole hour. After the Bible study is done, he pulls out his gun and he basically he kills nine people. And uh, there's there are different pictures of this Caucasian man wearing this jacket that kind of has different flags on it. It's got uh, the South African apartheid flag on it. It's got the um, there's another uh, 
previously Zimbabwe was under a different country name, and basically it was when it was ruled under um, the, the uh, Caucasian people. And he, he was, you really get the sense that um, this guy really is struggling in his life, basically. And as he's shooting people, he like says certain things that are just incredibly racist, and it's kind of like this idea of discrimination of, of different classes really, really hurts society. And Jesus looks at Peter and he says, you are going to be the next representative of God, right? I'm not saying that Peter is going to be the Pope. It's just you are the example of what Christians should be like. You are not to discriminate. And so Jesus reinforces you have to learn how to receive you have to let go of these preconceived ideas uh, that there are different classes and there's different worth. And so Jesus tells him, I want you to let me wash your feet. Now, if you look at John chapter 13, this ceremony of, of, of foot washing is very, very significant. And if you look at verse 9, Peter says to Jesus, okay then don't just wash my feet, wash my whole body. And Jesus then goes to explain, Peter, your body has already been washed. This foot washing ceremony, it just symbolizes that um, you are being reminded of the cleansing that has already taken place. In the Bible, when somebody is washed with water, it symbolizes a washing away of sin. It symbolizes that somebody has fully committed their lives to God. It also symbolizes that God has fully committed himself to the individual. And so what Jesus is trying to communicate to Peter is, you have already made a commitment. This foot washing ceremony is a reminder that I have committed myself to you. Peter, it's a reminder you have value. I have saved you. I have cleansed you. I love you. And you are my child. And Peter is sitting here and initially he struggles because he feels like I'm not worthy of this. And then he realizes Rather than clinging on to my own perception of my own value, I'm going to let go of that. And from the perspective of Jesus, I'm going to accept the way that he values me. And Peter then learns how to receive. The solution to this class distinction is doing away with his own perception of how people are classed. And he accepts how Jesus values humanity. And he realizes, God has saved me, God has valued me, and I accept that. And in doing so, Peter understands his own value. Notice what the Bible says in Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 to 28. For you all are sons, and you can say daughters as well, of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This passage where Paul says, if you understand the gospel, if you understand salvation and Christ's love and commitment to you and the way that he values you, it would do away with gender discrimination. It would do away with racism. It would do away with uh, religious um, superiority complex. He's just saying the solution to the world's insecurity and discriminating problems is the gospel. The solution is the gospel. So, recapping, lesson number one, true power comes from not what you receive, or, excuse, not just in what you get, but in what you give. Lesson number two, which is kind of contradictory to lesson number one, 
true power is not only in what you give, but it is in how you receive. So it's more how you receive, not just in receiving, right? I probably need to think that a little bit more. Lesson number three. Before one becomes powerful, one must be humble. Plato stated that the ultimate leader would embody the cardinal virtues, and there are four of them, justice, wisdom, courage, and moderation. Interestingly enough, he doesn't mention humility. Jesus is very unique in that when he talks about virtue, whenever he talks about power, whenever he talks about uh, authority, uh, he always mentions humility. Charles Spurgeon says, Humility is to make a right estimate of oneself and others. And the and others is just added by me. That's not actually part of Charles Spurgeon's quote, but I thought it should be there. <laughs> so this is Charles Spurgeon and Roy Kim. I don't know if this has any authority anymore. <laughs> but humility is to make a right estimate of oneself and others. It took Jesus' humility to stoop down and wash the feet of his undeserving disciples. But even though they were undeserving, it didn't mean that they weren't valuable. And so Jesus is communicating to his disciples, you have incredible value. And Jesus is able to see that, and in his humility, he serves his disciples. It takes Peter humility to accept and appreciate what Jesus has done for him. It took Peter humility to recognize I do have value because God values me. Humility is to make a right estimate of oneself and others. I believe that in the Bible, um, well, not just in the Bible, in life, humility and greatness go hand in hand. Notice what the Bible says here in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 12. Before his downfall, a man's heart is proud. But humility comes before honor. Humility comes before honor. One of my favorite quotes is uh, recently has been by Ben Carson. And he says, if you've got a normal working brain, you shouldn't be concerned about what you're not able to do. If you've got a normal working brain, you shouldn't be concerned about what you're not able to accomplish. And I love that because humility recognizes that God has fearfully and wonderfully created us. We have no idea what our potential is. Do you know in 100 years, man went from riding on horse-drawn carriages to landing on the moon? I mean, that is just incredible if you think about it. 100 years of human existence, horseback riding to landing on the moon. That is incredible. And, and I love the idea that humility rightly recognizes we actually don't know what we're, what we're capable of doing. So rather than thinking, I'm not worthy, or they're not worthy, or whatever these negative thoughts are, humility actually inspires hope. And this is where true greatness and power comes from. As you consider these three things, I hope that um, um, it puts power into perspective. And may we become this church that is powerful, that is able to give unsparingly, that is able to receive love uh, rightly, that is able to practice humility. Um, may God bless you.